0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We want to look at verses 9 through 14, and since I'm such a, you know, a nice, warm and fuzzy guy who likes to always bring cheery messages, especially at the first of the year, I'm going to uh, have a message entitled Delivered Up to Tribulation. Uh, you know, really, the truth of the matter is, this is where we find ourselves, in the sovereignty of God, as far as working through verse by verse uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, we are in Matthew 24 this morning, so uh, we resume our study. Uh, last Sunday was Christmas, so I brought a special Christmas message, but back into Matthew this morning. Matthew 24, 9-14, through 14, delivered up to tribulation. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, rightly dividing the word. And so, Lord, may we be edified as your people, uh, instructed and uh, further prepared for what you have for us to do as we serve you. Lord, if anyone's listening that is not yet a believer, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts to bring them to a saving faith, even as the word goes forth. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Note the overhead here. Uh, We are in the outline. Uh, The theme, of course, is Christ the King, but we've worked our way down to chapters 24-25, the predictions of the King. This section, Matthew 24 and 25, is commonly called the Olivet Discourse because Christ here addressed the disciples on the Mount of Olives. Well, this was given just a few days before the crucifixion. It's been called the single most important passage of prophecy You know, the Bible. And someone else has said it provides the master outline of end-time events. I think it's those things. uh, I like to call Matthew 24 and 25 a prophetic seed plot. Because here Jesus introduces new seeds of end-times information that the rest of the New Testament then builds on. It is here that Jesus introduces us to two phases of his second coming. The first phase is signless and comes as a surprise. The second phase has all manner of obvious signs and therefore is totally predictable once these signs begin to happen. And so uh, note uh, the overhead here. Uh, Christ here in Matthew 24 introduces uh, what I call phase one of his second coming. Uh, You know, the Old Testament prophets spoke about this, but they never spoke about phase one. They did speak about his return to the earth. But this was uh, not addressed by the Old Testament prophets. Why was that, do you suppose? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the entire reality of the church was a mystery. In the Old Testament. This is church truth here. The rapture, phase one. And uh, Christ is going to introduce it later uh, in the chapter. But really we're, we're talking, the first part of the chapter, Matthew 24, is dealing with, with the issues here. The tribulation signs that culminate in his second coming to the earth. As I say, it is Jesus himself who first introduces the surprise first phase of his second coming as seen here in Matthew 24. It is Jesus who is the first one to introduce the first aspect of his second coming as being like a thief who comes in the night, which then the rest of the New Testament writers, namely Paul, Peter, and John, then build on. It's a new concept. None of the Old Testament prophets spoke as as the Messiah coming as a thief in the night. This is a a new concept. New aspect. Introduced by Christ. The rest of the New Testament then builds on. Well, in Matthew 24, 3, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All the way through, Jesus is essentially dealing with what marks the end of the age. That is the end of the pre-Messianic or pre-Kingdom age. The climaxes in his second coming. And we don't have to wonder what end is in view, because Jesus, in the flow of thought here in Matthew 24, and specifically at verse 15, he tethers the idea of the end to what Daniel prophesied in the 70th week of Daniel prophecy, is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So, here in Matthew, chapter 24, in the flow of thought, Jesus tethers the end to the 70th week of Daniel. We don't have to wonder about that because he quotes from Daniel nine twenty-seven. In the flow of thought, that's what we're talking about. The end relates to this, and specifically, the end relates to the very end that culminates in his second coming. So, that's what we're talking about. Uh, you get that down... You'll have gone a long ways in properly understanding Matthew 24. Now, when Jesus references the end, in this context, he is speaking about the end of the 70th week of Daniel, as I say, commonly called the seven-year tribulation period that will usher in the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now, the seven-year tribulation period is divided up into th- to two Three and one half year segments. So let me, uh, I've got three slides here just to briefly get to where we want to go here. But uh, Daniel's 70th week, and of course we understand a week is a, a, a unit of seven years. So there were 70 units of seven years that God had determined his special dealings with Israel. 69 have been fulfilled, but one is yet to be fulfilled. One, one week, one seven year period. I really believe that these first verses, 4 through 8, are dealing with those first three and a half years. All these are but the beginning. These are the beginning of birth pangs. But the end is not yet, as we see, as we saw last week. But now we come to Matthew 24, 9 through 14. The last three and a half years. Then, following the beginning, then they will deliver you. And then the end will come, as we will see in our study this morning. So just really pretty much by way of review, we noted last time the beginning of sorrows, literally birth pangs, first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then we have the great tribulation that follows that last three and a half year period. In the middle, we have the desecration of the temple that we will talk about uh, this morning, which is committed by the Antichrist. So uh, note these key connector words. Uh, Verse 6, the end is not yet. The beginning of birth banks. These things he's describing in verses 4 through 8 are the beginning. But then the last half of the seven-year tribulation, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, then the end will come. So he, uh, you really have the whole thing surveyed in verses 4 through 14. In summary, the disciples asked, What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus proceeded to describe various signs that will define the seven-year tribulation period, which will culminate in the second coming. In Matthew 24, 4-8, Jesus listed deception, widespread war, famine, pestilences, and earthquakes as just the beginning. But the end is not yet. And what Jesus lists here really corresponds very closely uh, to the four seal judgments in Revelation 6, 1-8. This, many commentators believe, and I'm in agreement here, that this corresponds to the first half of the tribulation period. Verse 9, then, transitions to the second half of the tribulation that brings us to the end. So here's the the flow. If we're looking at the flow of what we have in Matthew 24, first half of the chapter, anyway, Matthew 24, the setting and the questions. And then... uh, Verses 4 through 35 really deal with tribulation sign events, culminating in the second aspect of the second coming. First half of the tribulation, verses 4 through 8. Second half of the tribulation, that's what we're talking about in our study today, in verses 9 through 14. And then we have a recapitulation of the second half of the tribulation. More detail is given in verses 15 through 28 that we will consider next week. And then we get to the second coming in verses 29 through 31 and then the parable of the fig tree. So let's pick it up with that background. Let's pick up our study. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you should be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The Greek word uh, tote, T-O-T-E, translated here as then is a time word and a transition word that is best understood as transitioning to the second half of the tribulation period. It can be translated as then or as at that time. Uh, Bruce Hurt uh, summarizes well here. Then is an adverb that functions as an expression of time. Tote means at that time or a point of time subsequent to another point of time. Note that this adverb is found in verse 9, 10, 14, and generally indicates sequence, a successive order of two or more things. Well, in context, Jesus has just stated that all these things, verses 4 through 7, are the beginning of birth pangs, which is consistently in the Scriptures descriptive of the day of the Lord, tribulation period. That phrase is consistently used in, in reference to the tribulation period. Now the scripture, in no uncertain terms, marks the middle of the tribulation as a clear turning point in the tribulation period. Uh, we go back to Daniel. Daniel nine twenty seven. This is speaking of the Antichrist. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's where we get the idea of a seven-year tribulation period. One week. One week is a period of seven years. But in the middle, three and a half years in, in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The Jews will have their rebuilt temple. They will be doing sacrifice and offering. He's going to bring an end to it. Three and a half years in. And it says, and on the wing, or or the high point, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist and what he does halfway through the tribulation period. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now this is exactly what Jesus references in Matthew 24, 15. We'll get there, Lord willing, next week. But 2 Thessalonians 2 reveals more specifically... What is this height of abomination and what it involves? Notice what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Again, speaking of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I mean, you can't get a higher uh, form of arrogance than this. This is the very same time period that Revelation 13 addresses. Where we read, Revelation 13, again, speaking of Antichrist, he was given a mouth speaking great things. Yeah, and blasphemies. What kind of things? I'm God. He's given a mouth got a mouth on him, huge mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him. It was granted to him. Well, he's, he's allowed this. God is sovereign, but he is granted. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. In the last half of the tribulation period, it will be open season on Christians. As Antichrist declares all-out war on them. And he will have legal control to pursue killing Christians all over the world. At this point, there will be no safe place to hide anywhere in the world. And it it's precisely at this time that all in the world will be commanded to take the mark of the beast, 666, or they cannot buy or sell anywhere as shown in at the end of Revelation 13 here. Now, this last half of the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, or the time of great tribulation as Christ calls it in Matthew 24:21. This will be the absolute worst time in human history. And it will be really rough for those who convert to be God's people. Tribulation has the idea of persecution or distress and is used 3 times in this chapter. The persecution at this point will be very murderous and full of hatred. John MacArthur says the unbelieving world will intensify its hatred of God. And because it cannot attack him directly, it will fiercely attack his people. And that is often the case. Uh, you know, can't get to God, so you take it out on God's people. Now many see here a parallel with the fifth seal, which relates to the martyred saints in the tribulation period. When the fifth seal is opened, this is what we find. Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They crowded with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. The hatred for Christians at this point will be universal. Being hated by all nations. You say, well, there's a Switzerland over here. There's there's a nice, safe little haven. No, 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 no. There's not. Be hated by all nations. Christ says, and the reason is given. For my name's sake. You dare in those days to identify with Christ. The governments of the world, the whole system of the world will be out to get you. Now, the church age has no specific signs. But it does have trends that are preparing the way for the Antichrist. Let me show you what I mean. We have specific revelation to this effect. In 1 John 2, 18 and 19, little children, it's the last hour. How do we know that? Well, He says, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come... By which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It's apostasy. It goes away. It walks away. Apostasy that turns on Christians is part of the last day's madness that prepares the way for the ultimate time of persecution under Antichrist. And we see this developing trend even now. Dr. David Jeremiah writes, In many parts of the world, the persecution of Christians now exceeds any period in history. According to Dr. Todd M. Johnson of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, more than 70 million Christians have been martyred throughout history. And more than half of those deaths occurred in the 20th century. Open Doors International estimates that 360 million Christians in the world today experience extreme persecution because of their faith. That is one out of every seven believers worldwide. And John L. Allen Jr. writes, Christians today, indisputably, are the most persecuted religious body on the planet. And too often, the new martyrs suffer in silence. The world is gearing up for the rule of Antichrist. It's coming. The only question is when. And we're not setting any dates because we have read through Matthew 24. But it's coming. It's just a matter of timing. Christ says, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Hatred is a major defining reality of depravity, And will be highlighted at this point in history. As the devil and the Antichrist are given, not total free reign, but pretty much. Offended is from the Greek word scandalizo, which literally means cause to stumble. In the sense of falling spiritually, which suggests that these people were previously professing believers. The idea here is to morally take offense and hence fall away. The sense here is that of apostasy. These people had some knowledge of the truth, but as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, quote, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They stumble over the truth because they are offended by by the cost of associating with it. Again, MacArthur says, although they will have had an outward identification with Christ, They will prove by their desertion that they never belong to him. When the persecution becomes too severe, they will forsake Christ and join fellow unbelievers in assailing God's people. Because they are offended, they betray those who love the truth. You know, betrayal is a terrible thing. You ever been betrayed? It's terrible. You know why betrayal is so bad? It's an inside job. Betrayal is an inside thing. And the ultimate example of betrayal is Judas. Luke calls him a traitor. Today, a synonym for being a traitor is to be a Judas. These people are Judases. The world will be full of them at this point. And they will turn in friends and family to the system governed by Antichrist. Really, in an act of spiritual treachery. And show no loyalty to friends or family whatsoever. Betrayal is one of the worst things in life. Again, Jeremiah says, David Jeremiah says, What makes betrayal so raw and painful is that it comes not from our enemies, but from those we believe to be our friends. Even our family. People can't betray us unless we've allowed them through our grid of defenses. Unless we've let down our guard and trusted them. And notice what he goes on to say here then. And we'll hate one another. Again, hate is a prominent defining trait of a calloused, depraved society at this point. That is following Antichrist. The fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost love. By this, all men will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. But these people are given over to Satan and therefore characterized by hatred. Verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. You see, Antichrist comes on the scene with a whole army of false prophets and deceivers. My mentor was uh, Dr. John C. Whitcomb. He served in World War II. And he said that Hitler could never have accomplished the havoc that he did had he not had a whole army of people who thought like he did, who had the same drive and the same passion that he did. And so it will be with Antichrist. Yes, he will head it up. But he can only be in one place at one time. And so he will have in league with him many false prophets who will deceive the masses throughout the world. There's a spiritual component here uh, related to false prophets. They have a kind of spiritual ministry, but it's deceptive. It lines up with Antichrist. It might surprise you that, that Hitler came off as a very conservative guy in many respects. And some of the people got behind him because it sounded so good. I mean, he was very conservative when it came to hating homosexuals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very deceptive here. The world doesn't know God's truth and is being set up for mass deception. People who don't follow God's truth are vulnerable to Satan's lies that he propagates through his servants. Again, false prophets, they claim to speak from God. That's why they're false prophets. They say, I have a message from God. But here is the thing. Their prophecies are not true. It leads away from God instead of to God. It is inconsistent with Scripture instead of being consistent with the revealed word of God. That's how we know. Jesus said something very interesting. In John chapter 5, verse 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another, he's talking about the Antichrist, if another, another supposed Christ, if another Christ, the Antichrist, comes, he comes in his own name, Him you will receive. You see, Jesus came in the Father's name, meaning He came in fulfillment of the Father's word. Everything about Jesus lined up with the Father, His word, the God-ordained prophecies. He met the Messianic credentials to a T. His whole ministry and life was about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Came in the Father's name. But Antichrist will come on his own terms, doing his own thing. Yes, he will do miracles by the power of the dark side, but they're not connected to any legitimate messianic prophecy. You see, he simply operates in a vacuum, appealing to people's feelings instead of to God's truth, and thereby the masses will be deceived. You get somebody being able to do miracles and call fire down out of heaven, and these guys, boy, people, wow, look at that! That's for sure true! Again, the last day's church age sets the stage for the coming of the Antichrist. And they are said to be last day's perilous times, dangerous times, in which apostasy is the defining trait. Paul writes... 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The thing about false prophets is that they are deceptive. They mislead people. But they do it in a deceptive way. They're not honest. And it sounds good to the naive I mean, the promise of health, wealth, prosperity sounds good, especially when you quote chapter and verse about, are you ready for this? About submitting to the authorities that be. It's right there. God wants you to submit to the authority. Imagine if Antichrist in control of all the governments of the world. You need to submit These false prophets, that's what it says. Well, there's a whole counsel of God. There's a whole context here. But forget that. That's the way they operate. In this case, Antichrist will be in control. And his commands will fly directly in the face of God's word. Doesn't take a lot of discernment to figure out if a guy's sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, he's uh, of the devil. Right? I mean, if you know the Bible at all, you'll know, oh man, <laughs> this is fulfillment of Scripture, and he's not God. He's the, he's the false Christ. The danger of a false prophet is that he speaks in the lingo of Scripture just enough to be deceptive. Deception is a major defining trait of the end times. We see this emphasis in this chapter over and over. Verse 4 Take heed that no one deceives you. First thing Christ says. Verse 5, many will come saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. Verse 11 here, many false prophets will deceive many. How can we protect ourselves against deception? Well, Spurgeon was right when he says, discernment is is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. You want to be discerning? Know the book. That's how we know what's right and what's wrong. This is what discernment is all about. It's about the knowledge of the truth and applying it properly. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness is the idea of being without the restraint of law. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9, the Antichrist is called the lawless one. He has no regard for any law other than his own. After all, he claims to be God. And you know what? If you are God, you know what you can do? You can set the rules. And he does. Notice what we read there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The spirit spirit of Antichrist, it's already at work, uh, churning in the world. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. there's a restrainer in place, which I think is the Holy Spirit. And then, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. To come feeble? No. With all power, signs, signs, and lying wonders. You want power, signs, and wonders? He's got them for you. World, look at this. I do all these things, and it's proof that I am God. Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. This lawless spirit is seen in Psalm 2 where the rulers of the nations take counsel against the Lord and His anointed saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We see this in our day where depravity seeks to defy even the very laws of nature as ordained by God claiming such crazy things and, frankly, totally crazy things such as you can choose your own gender. It really doesn't get much more wacky, crazy, or depraved than that. Sure, here they come. Somebody just called the authorities and they're coming to take me away. Thankfully, we're not in that tribulation period yet. We see this spirit of lawlessness in today's world where there is tremendous backlash against the whole of the Judeo-Christian ethic on which our society was founded. Again, this is all stage setting for the Antichrist, who brings persecution, hatred, betrayal, deception, and lawlessness to a head. Without the proper restraint of law, the love of many will grow cold, and in effect, die out. No one will care about others anymore. The world will be a callous place. Depravity is vicious and ugly. And unchecked, it does the unthinkable. The emphasis here is strong on hatred at this point. It's always defined depravity, but boy, now it's kind of like it's unleashed in a, in, a, in a way that builds to a climax here. Very strong. It's a world full of haters and hatred. And that's a miserable place to be (laughs) if you're the people of God. Notice verse 9, hated by all nations. Verse 10, they will hate one another. Verse 12, their love will grow cold. We already saw there will be wars and rumors of wars and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You've got a world of haters just all mulling and milling around and, and doing what they can to try to destroy one another. That's the devil's world. And yet God is sovereign. Verse 13. But, 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 he who endures to the end will be saved. The word saved means to be delivered or rescued. However, from what and in what manner is dependent upon the context. So the question becomes, is this talking about physical deliverance or spiritual deliverance? And good scholars disagree here. Some have thought that enduring to the end and thereby being saved means perseverance of the saints. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, who persevere even to the point of death. and thus spiritual salvation is in view. And it is certainly true that true believers will persevere even unto death. A cross-reference to argue for this view is found in Matthew 10:22 where the identical language is used in regard to those who will die for their faith, we read in the, in the midst of the whole, in the thick of the tribulation period, in Revelation twelve eleven. they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. This is what defines God's people in the tribulation period. Bruce Hunt says, or Bruce Hurt says, it will not be a time... When people profess Christ as they do in our day, where there is no significant cost for associating oneself with Christ, in that day, it could cost one their life. You know, that gives you some real pause. If, if you realize, hey, I may die if I'm going to profess faith. It's pretty easy to raise your hand. <laughs> Especially when you don't really have to, to it doesn't cost you anything. Years ago, I heard a testimony about a believer who came out of a context of a a persecution in a communist country. And as they came here to America, they expressed shock that people could actually live in a context where they professed Christ, but didn't really mean it. They said that where they came from, they would never fake it because the cost was too high. That will certainly be true in the tribulation period under Antichrist people are not going to fake it if their profession is not real because it may very well cost them their life. But having said that, I would also argue that the nature of a true saving faith is the same in every dispensation. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 10.13 is said to be the verse most often used to invite sinners to receive Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And while it may be true that this is the verse that is most often used, certainly one of them, we should note that Romans 10, 13 is a quote from where? Well, the Old Testament, namely Joel 2, verse 32, which is a prophetic context related to the tribulation period, to the day of the Lord. Notice what we find there in Joel 2, 32. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And then the quote is from there it, by Paul in Romans ten thirteen, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. My point is, the nature of saving faith today is the same as saving faith that will be exercised in the tribulation period as the very same language applies to both eras. The faith that saves in Romans 10 is expressed in the same way as that which will be expressed in the day of the Lord, as seen in Joel 2.32. So the first view is that true faith endures to the end and does not completely or finally apostatize, but is willing even to die for Christ if necessary. I think it's a good measurement as far as, uh, do you have a saving faith? Are you willing to die for Christ? That will be the test in the tribulation period. So, but but, but we, we, that doesn't apply to us. Yeah, you maybe want to rethink the nature of saving faith and the consistency of it as found in the Scriptures. Those who do this will be saved spiritually, and ultimately they will go into the kingdom. And this is certainly true theologically. William MacDonald says, although saving faith may have lapses, it always has the quality of permanence. That is a true statement. Unless you have a a vain faith, vain faith doesn't continue, but true saving faith does, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, MacArthur says, it's not that a person's endurance will produce salvation, no, but that his endurance will be a spirit-empowered product and proof of the reality that he is saved. Endurance is always a mark of salvation. I think that's true. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith. What kind of faith? Well, the kind of faith that endures, that perseveres. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to damnation, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is what defines true believers. However, having said all that, in this whole immediate context, the end relates to the end of the age that ushers in the coming of Christ, which serves to answer the disciples' question about the end of the age, as we saw in verse 3. The word translated end here is the Greek word telos. And it refers to the ultimate end, purpose or goal of an action. It refers, therefore, to the very end of a process. And it's used in verse 6, 13, and 14. So note what we're looking at here. The end is not yet. Endures to the end, shall be saved. And then the end will come. I think there's a consistency here in terms of what we're talking about in relationship to the end. As noted in verse 9, many, if not most, true believers alive at that time will be killed. Note what we find in the book of Revelation. Verse 9, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these who are arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. An innumerable number of believers will die for their faith in the great tribulation. And yet I think the language of to the end in verse 13 indicates the preferred view is that some believers will survive the horrors of the tribulation and be physically delivered to go into the kingdom. It will be these survivors who then populate the kingdom in terms of those born in the kingdom age. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. A specific gospel emphasis is emphasized here. Namely, this gospel of the kingdom. Now that's an interesting phrase. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus followed, he came on the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Subsequently, what characterized Christ's ministry was teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom with accompanying evidence of healing all kinds And every sickness and disease, which served as proof that he was indeed the Messianic king offering the kingdom on the condition of repentance. So note uh, the emphasis that we saw earlier in Matthew 4.23. Jesus went about Galilee teaching all their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. 9.35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching In their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among people. This is what characterizes the kingdom, this healing everybody. But as the nation rejected Christ, as seen in the blasphemy of the Spirit, in Matthew 12, the kingdom program was then put on hold and delayed, as seen in the parables of Matthew 13. After that, the kingdom was no longer offered. No longer is it said to be at hand. The language of the gospel of the kingdom is no longer used after Matthew 13. We don't see it anymore in the gospel of Matthew until we get to chapter 24. We don't see it in the New Testament epistles. We don't see it until we get to the future tribulation period, which is the context here in Matthew 24. Then the good news of the kingdom will again become a prominent emphasis. Then once again, the kingdom will be on the horizon. Then once again, it will be at hand and thus will again be the dominant emphasis that will be preached. You see, today in the church age, where we live, we're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Not in the sense as emphasized in Matthew. You know what we're preaching today? Well, Look at what the New Testament says. We're preaching the gospel of Christ. Known by other names such as the gospel of the grace of God. But never, never in the epistles does it say we are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Because we are not doing so in a direct sense like we see emphasized in the gospel of Matthew. William MacDonald says, Verse 14 is often misused to show that Christ could not return for his church at any moment because so many tribes have not yet heard the gospel. But this refers to the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of the grace of God. Wycliffe, Bible commentary. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of salvation in the Messiah with the emphasis that the Messianic kingdom is about to be established. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. And note this gospel of the kingdom, in this tribulation context, will be preaching all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. In the first half of the tribulation period, God will raise up two special witnesses who will have a ministry that impacts the entire world, as seen in Revelation chapter 11. I mean, when they are killed, the whole world is rejoicing. They may have kind of a special holiday, you know, kind of like Christmas, where they, they give gifts to one another. Happy Dead Witnesses Day. You know, they, they will be celebrating this. Everybody will be turned into CNN. A big coverage, the best coverage they've had in years probably. But anyway, it, it will be there. Then God will raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they too will have a ministry impact that affects the entire world. Immediately after the calling of the 144,000 are mentioned in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, immediately we read this. Revelation 7, 9. After these things. After what things? Well, after the 144,000 are called, as seen in those previous eight verses. After these things, I look and behold a great multitude which no one could number of nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. The implication is that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will win huge multitudes of people to the Lord. But God is not done yet. He insists. He insists that this gospel of the kingdom be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Double emphasis on everybody, everywhere, all the nations. So, just before the climactic bowl judgments are poured out, which will bring the labor pains of the tribulation period to maximum intensity, Issuing in the birth of the kingdom. Just before this. Just before this. God will send out an angel to preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Read it with me. This is what the book says. The context is clear. Right before the culmination of the tribulation period. Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel... To preach to those who dwell on the earth. To, To who? To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Nowhere else in all the Bible do we find angels actually preaching the gospel. Nowhere else. At this point, God will employ even an angel in this task to canvas the world one last time. In effect, crying out, the people might even at this last moment respond. You see, God does so love the world. He wants them to respond. The everlasting gospel is that God triumphs forever, which is essentially synonymous with the gospel of the kingdom. Denoting the rule of the king. Note the emphasis on the fact that this message is going out to all peoples of the entire world. You see, the events of the tribulation period are all world events. Remember this? Verse 9, hated by all nations. Now verse 14, preaching in all the world. A witness to all the nations. God is operating... On a global, all world scale at this point. And truly, this is the last call that will then that will bring in the end. And then the end will come. So, just to summarize, what we've talked about here. The sign of the global gospel in the, at the end of the age. The sign, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. We quoted it, uh, we read it. Revelation 14. Then the end. Then the end will come. King of kings returns bringing this age to an end. Bruce Hurt again says, if we we let context rule our interpretation, the end to which Jesus refers is the end of the age, which is the initial question asked by the disciples. The end here in verse 14 has the definite article referring in context to a very specific end. Namely, the end related that will usher in Christ's second coming. Well, let me wrap up here. As we live in the church age, Paul says we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10 11. We don't have to wonder where we live. We live at the end. We know we live at the end. We just don't know how much of the end there is. Now, when we get to the 70th week, they'll know. I mean, when Antichrist goes in the temple, we know there's three and a half years. But right now, you see what's happening? The stage is being set for the last day's finale in which God's judgment will come upon the entire world which will usher in the second coming of Christ to the earth. God has deposited His truth to the church so that we might be a witness to the world and part of that witness is to warn the world that judgment day is coming you see noah preached a warning for 120 years and then the flood came lot tried to warn his family of impending judgment but they didn't take him seriously and thought he must be joking soren kierkegaard was a danish theologian who lived in the 1800s and he gave this illustration a fire broke out it's just an illustration A fire broke out backstage at a theater. An actor came out to warn the public. They thought it was a joke and applauded. (laughs) This is a great acting job. He repeated it. And the acclaim was even greater. And then Kierkegaard said, he thought this is how the end would come. You know what Peter says? Peter says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come In the last days. say, where is the promise of his coming? This is where we live. There are no overt signs in the church age as judgment comes to the earth like a thief in the night. But for those who have eyes to see, we see growing trends of hatred, lawlessness, apostasy that are setting the stage for Antichrist. The great sign in the church age, if you want to use that language, is that of apostasy. Where people no longer take the warning of coming judgment seriously. Even now we see the mystery of lawlessness that is already at work. Even now we see many antichrists on the scene who are setting the stage for the antichrist who is to come. And by this, John says, we know it's the last hour. Even now the stage is being set. Even now the warning is going forth. The judgment day is coming. And the people should get right with God while they still have the opportunity. You know what the Bible says? It says now. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. The Bible says that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? 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 Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The Bible says that God is patiently waiting because He is not wishing for any to perish but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, as we enter into 2023, we wonder if this is the year that Jesus will come in the rapture and the world will enter into the day of the Lord judgment. No one knows. But we are told to be ready, to watch and be ready. So may our watchword for 2023 be live ready. The storm of God's judgment is coming. We know it's coming because Jesus told us about it. Therefore, be ready. Live ready. Let's stand and have our closing song.